hearing that the first time is uh, your life is different after you hear that. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Three. Hello, my name is Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. Daniel Donato is one of the best guitar players out there in today's music scene. He's 27 years old, and his musical style has been said to blend the best of Nashville honky-tonks with an improvisational spirit rooted in the ethos of the Grateful Dead. He began his music career by busking outside arenas before John Mayer and Fish concerts and quickly moved onto playing Robert's Western World with the Don Kelly Band at the age of 16, jamming regularly with Nashville's most seasoned players. Today, Daniel tours with his band playing cosmic country music to an ever-growing audience and with some of the world's most famous musicians such as Bob Weir. One band that inspired Daniel is the Beatles, and that's what we're going to talk about today. How they inspired him, what they represent as creative forces, his favorite George Harrison songs, and how the Beatles made timeless music. Welcome, Daniel Donato. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How's it going? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. You've created such an incredible world of music recently with Cosmic Country and your last couple of albums. For listeners who might not know your music yet, or for those who know your music and would like to know more about you, I'd like to start your story from the beginning. So can mm -hmm. you tell us about how you grew up and what kind of music you listened to as a kid? Yeah, I grew up incredibly normal um, in terms of my setting um, externally. There was... Um, a love of music that was always present from within my father, particularly. Um, my mom loves some songs in a very deep way. And like, she's always loved those songs. And a lot of them actually tend to be like, um, children's songs. Uh, she loves singing little children's songs to me when she give me hugs, you know? And like, those are the songs I know that my mom knows the most. And she loves Mama Tried by Merle Haggard and, she loves Pink Floyd, but my, my dad loved music. And, um, my trip though, was not one of the, the nature of where like my grandfather played and my dad played and like everyone got together and they were, you know, like picking on the porch and like, everyone was like, wow, look at this kid. And I was just a genius at it or something like that. It, it was none of that. My dad had a guitar. He had a black, uh, Fender Stratocaster. I think it's from 92. And he had a, um, a vantage acoustic and the guitars were always around the house. But when my, when my dad met my mother, um, he had to, uh, figure out the crossroads of his life in terms of what he was going to do for a career. And when, cause I was already born when my parents met each other. Um, so there was a slight desire that my dad had to play guitar, but it, 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 it was different than my trip. Um, and so he ended up not ever pursuing guitar in a way where he even played on stage ever. He did take lessons and played around with his friends and knew a lot of solos. 
and uh, rhythms and how to do bar chords and major minor pentatonic to some degree. And uh, that was nice when I wanted to get into music. When I was first introduced to the guitar, it was something that I didn't really like. I didn't like the, ta the tactile sensation of the instrument. And uh, it just wasn't ready for me at the time. I wasn't, or I wasn't ready for it, rather, is how I'd like to say it. I just wasn't. And that's totally cool. But when I was 12, that's when music started to become hard to say it was different than my life as a whole. And then when I was 14, it was solidified that my life is actually, to some degree, measurably music. Um, if not the entire thing, I, it's just as I get older, I hate to say things in um, uh, that reside on a full side of a polarity of some kind. You kind of are like going against the Kabbalion in some way where it's like you, uh, I'm not going to say it's fully my life, but I, I really don't know the difference uh, when I start to think about it and do it more. I don't know the difference really in any way that holds a found um argument against how much I do it and how often I feel it and how real it is to me and how real it is to other people. And, uh, so 14 is when I started to become a very much in love and possessed by it in a very real way. And the Beatles, uh, were always there. Now I'll tell you this, my grandfather hated the Beatles and my dad did not like the Beatles. <laughs> you know, and in my family, like so my mom thinks, that my mom thought John Bon Jovi was in the Beatles. I was like, <laughs> when, the, when they were watching Get Back, when I was watching Get Back at their house, just chilling, you know, feeding my sister's rabbits some carrots with her. Uh, we got into like 20 minutes of episode one. And uh, my, my, it was just, it wasn't, a, it wasn't that kind of a thing where my dad was like, come here, son. And then like showed me, you know, in my life, there was none of that. It was all really uh, me and this part of me that I'm always talking to and, playing with that discovered the Beatles in a way that was actually individualized, which was really good. I, I, I was able, I, I'm very uh, disagreeable and hard headed and definitely to a fault, a large percentage of my time in existence. And I kind of, I think for me, for one reason or many had to basically discover that entire universe uh, on my own and have my own opinions about it and how how I could uh, really see the whole arc and try to see the whole arc of what was going on with the Beatles. Loved the Beatles from an early on time and still do. That's awesome, man. And yeah. like, how did you come across the Beatles for the first time? Was it through the internet? Was it through records or a music video? You think about it. I mean, you might not even remember because it was so long ago. Yeah. They're just in a lot of people's lives for a really long time. Yeah, they kind of exist outside of time, really, in some way, how real they are. Uh, I don't... Oh, I do remember. Here we go. Uh, my uncle so my uncle Sam, Sam Lax, who is a week older than me. Uh, my mom's the oldest of six, and Sam is the youngest of six. So my uncle was basically my older brother by a week in the sense of how brothers play and behave for the, our early years in life together. And so it's, rather, it's the reason why we moved to, to Tennessee is because my grandparents who were married at the time wanted to raise Sam and Jacob and Karen in a place that was a little bit better where they were living in New Jersey. So again, for one reason or many, Sam and I actually kind of started guitar at the same time. 
And he, in that early window of our time playing the guitar together, he was far more uh, reaching, sophisticated, understanding, and intuitively capable with the instrument. Um, probably for the first year, that was the case. And um, I remember Sam had he had these quirky ideas. He would be, and he he tried. Uh, we were sitting by uh, the pool one day. It's like above ground pool in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Um, and Sam had this twelve string Epiphone that he got at Nashville Used Music. And he had this idea to learn how to play Blackbird on the 12 string without hitting any of the other strings. Wow. You know, so a 12 string will have some high tuning and then it'll have some doubled strings on there. Um, so he was doing it. I, he never sang. So all he did was he played the music. And I can remember it very clear to this day. I remember hearing the, the pool vacuum going on. I remember my grandmother had the window open with the screen in between that could look through to make sure we were okay and she was doing dishes and I remember hearing just the music of Blackbird and uh it sounded it was uh it was it was a friend I'd always known that I just met wow Man, what a peaceful way to get introduced to the Beatles. Yeah. I really love that. Yeah. Yeah, man, me, me too. I, I, I couldn't have thought of a better way to get into it. And then uh, I, another way that, that struck me was when I started getting into Chet Atkins and Tommy Emmanuel. Uh, specifically, Tommy, he has an arrangement of, of uh, Day Tripper and Lady Madonna. That he does in the key of E. And I used to be able to play and I can't play it anymore. It might be cool to learn how to play it again. But I that, that was um there's some feelings on the instrument where you hear them and you think, my God, if I could play this, it would be better than flying with wings. It would or it would be it would approximate that kind of a relationship to your environment and time and space. And I learned it. And it was one of the first things on the guitar that I really learned where I could actually prove to myself that I could winterize a desire uh, that was musically founded. And that is a recurring process that I still participate in today. And so just even the, uh, the adaptions of the Beatles arrangements uh, from other artists were, were striking as well. And that speaks to the potency of the material. Yeah, the Beatles songs are very special in that way because another artist could cover a Beatles song and it would sound fantastic, like no matter who covers it. Um, but it's always identifiably a Beatles song. Yeah, that's very accurate, my friend. I, I can't agree enough. You know, Fish does a great job at doing the Beatles and the Grateful Dead do a good job. And Jerry Reggie did a good job at doing the Beatles and Chet Atkins did. It's, it's that kind of a thing where if, if, it's, if it vibrates at that frequency... At, at, at that level of songwriting, it's going to work in whatever you dress it in, whatever jacket you give it, whatever cologne you spray on it, whatever light you put it in. It sincerely is just ridden with truth, beauty, and goodness in such a way that it, it I don't, you can't really conceive it. I, I, how does that happen? How do songs that good enter into this reality? And how does it happen with four guys essentially? not including George Martin, 
um, and anyone else who was on the Beatles team at the time. But like, that's just, it's, uh, it's one of the most cosmic occurrences that have happened in art with humans uh, probably ever. Oh, absolutely. And that was such a beautiful way to word that too. Thank you. So while we're talking about the Beatles songwriting, I'd like to ask you about how you decided to pursue a career in music and start building this world that you're building now. Um, I, I, I felt like I, I didn't, I didn't choose it all at once, but it was happening for a while before I chose it. It, it was just this thing, uh, that happened to my life that I, I knew I couldn't stop doing. Uh, cause I felt like I really wouldn't have been doing my, my actual work down here. And, um, yeah, man. So I guess it all started when I was 14 and my dad had this idea because he's very uh, visually minded and he's therefore good at coming up with next actions and steps uh, to uh, help his son. And he knew that I was really hardworking and I was disciplined, but I, I wasn't I wasn't really locked into something yet. So when I was 14, he had this idea that the day after eighth grade ends, I'll want you and I drive down uh, to lower Broadway and you take out your guitar and try to make a few dollars. You, you seem to like this guitar. I, I hear you playing it before you go to school. You're playing it when you go to bed and you're asking me questions about it that I can't answer. And I see you're listening to a lot of music. And so he saw it as a good avenue for me to go and try to just have a summer job. And, uh, I, we went down one day and I, I, I played for a few hours out front of, um, hat show print on Broadway when it was still down there in Nashville. And, uh, my, I, I made no money and I was devastated <laughs> and, uh, I was like, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if this is right. <laughs> it's hot out here. My hands hurt and no one cared. And should I care? Uh, valid thoughts for a 14-year-old boy. Now, when walking past a, a venue uh, with my guitar in my soft case over my shoulders, uh, we heard a call from upon the stage. And the call was from such an important character of my life as uh, Randy Hall. Um, Rockin' Randy Hall, his nickname on stage at the time was Wood, Wood, Woodstock 69. Randy was a one-of-a-kind American, truly, um, in all the ways that you can really measure it. And I mean that in the highest regard possible. And he saw, he said, hey, kid, hey, 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 stop, you know, where are you guys going? It's <laughs> like, oh, I'm playing on the street for the first time, made no money. I'm going to go get some chicken nuggets and go home and <laughs> chill. And he was like, why don't you come up on stage? You look like you play pretty good. <laughs> Because he never heard me play before. He said, you got the right hair for it. <laughs> and uh, I had on these Who, the Who Converse shoes at the time, too. They got me up on stage to play with them. This whole thing happened in probably less than 90 seconds, if not 60. And to think about the effect of the 13 years that, that has um, preceded those 60 seconds, it's inconceivable for me in a lot of measurable ways. So we get up on stage and I, I played blues in A and then we played um, Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger. And it was the first time that I ever played uh, a, a guitar on stage and the guitar happened to be a Telecaster. 
and it was at a at a at a venue called Legends Corner. And when you walk out of Legends Corner and you go back up to where you're parking, you pass the Ryman Auditorium, ten um, fifteen feet away, twenty five feet away. Um, and I just I wasn't aware of what was happening in my unconscious at the time, but consciously I I felt that sensation of, oh, this is that flying thing. This is that flying thing again, and I have to follow this. I I'm almost being pulled towards it like a puppet or just how a tuner tightens up a string, pulls it ever so closer, pulls it to a higher frequency. What's happening there. And with that comes pressure. And so I was instantly obsessed with it. I remember hearing a note from the 10th fret to the 12th fret on the B string. And I remember feeling something that I hadn't felt before. And I remember seeing somebody 10 feet away from me just raise their hands up in the air in this way of pure excitement. And they, they were watching a child uh, discover a part of music in themselves that they had never been in, in contact with before. And uh, a really heavy moment for me, the more I reflect on it as I get older. And so from there, I, it, was, it was like, just clear the China. This is what we're doing, Daniel. This is what we're doing. This is what you have to do. Um, and I became obsessed. I went down the next day, or maybe the next week. I don't want to sensationalize it uh, unconsciously at all. But I, I think I went down maybe the next week. And my mom, my sweet mother, wrote on a Converse shoebox, saving up for a Telecaster. Because that's what was the country guitar, and it still is, and most likely always will be, is the, is the Telecaster. And I really wanted one. And... uh I went downtown that day and I had this Roland Microcube that I got from Guitar Center. And I think my dad's black strap, which is crazy, which I haven't thought about in years. And I made enough money that day to, to buy a Telecaster. And with that money, walking home that day, we were going to uh, grab a bite to eat somewhere on Broadway. And then we were, we luckily at the time stumbled into a place called Robert's Western World. There was no doorman at attendance at that hour, uh, but there should have been because uh, you had to be 21 to get in at the time. Uh, and I got in. And there was a band setting up, uh, set up to play, and we saw that they had uh, chicken tenders or fried bologna sandwiches, and it was like $7. And uh, this band started playing shortly after we got our food, and... Uh, That was it for me, seeing them play the Don Kelly band. That was it. That was so much. That was like, uh, it was technicality. It was intention. It was improvisation and it was energy and it was curation of songs and styles and where it rested on Broadway was that it, Roberts kind of has to compete just like any other bar does. So they know how to entertain people there. And Don was just such a good entertainer, such a good band leader. And I just, I'd never seen that before, man. It was like, I just didn't know what to think. It was this big upright bass played by Dave Rowe who played with Jerry Reed and Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash made him start the upright bass. He was a legend. And then Don playing this insane acoustic rhythm guitar and then 
Artie Alinikoff on drums, combining these Western swing elements with R&B, Bernard Purdy influence with having lived in San Francisco and been around that scene of art when at the time it was happening, he just, he had this insane pocket that I've never heard anyone else even come close to. Um, in that particular way, not a judgment value on quality, but just no one, I've never heard a drummer that feels like that drummer. And then last but not least was J.D. Simo. Um, J.D. was 24 at the time and he was playing this blue Telecaster that was just beat to hell through a deluxe reverb with a bunch of reverb and like the treble at like six. And I, it was just like this feeling of like, I'm, that is my soul. That is me. Like there, I am in there when I hear that. And like, not the me I am, but the me I'll become. And it was like the future unraveling before my eyes. Like I was just obsessed with this band from the second I heard them. And that night, JD came down after they played Ghost Riders in the Sky, and he introduced himself to me. Um, and he was really kind. And he, so he told me to never use tabs, <laughs> like uh, not tabs of acid, but tab, uh, tablature for guitar. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then to, it, but to learn everything by ear. And... And then the the other one was to the other one was to listen on vinyl and not on MP3. <laughs> and this is coming from a 24-year-old kid uh who, you know, saw that this 14-year-old child was like very moved by what he just did. So I, I stuck with those elements for a good while. And it was shortly after that I ended up getting a record player. And the first two records that I received were uh, Abbey Road. And uh, Stardust by Willie Nelson. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And I, that was it. So that's kind of how I, I, I started. And it just went through other elements of progression since then. But I, I, in terms of a career, it was the thing that I was most driven at. Um, I had a talent for it. Um, I got paid for it. And the world liked it. And... I think those are, in terms of like an Iki guy, Eastern sense, those are the four parameters that are worth shooting for and trying to stick with. And so that's all I've ever done my whole life, all the time, truly. And what have been your favorite moments of your career so far? I don't really uh, know, I guess. if I, I don't really think about that stuff, kind of. Um <laughs> Uh, getting the Don Kelly band gig was a, a, a supreme high for me. I recently got to play with Bob Weir. Um, that was a that was wild. Um, getting to be mentored by some of my favorite players. Um, not really so much stage driven stuff, even though there's been a lot of those moments. But it's just that kind of thing of like, when's the favorite time? you know, that like you brush your teeth. Like I just do it that often. Like, I don't know, even though I hold it in a much higher regard with reverence and brushing my teeth, uh, there's a, there's, but there is also a similarity in terms of just the daily application and the feeling of there. It's not such a big deal that I, that I get on stage and play. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of reverence for it. It just means that that has a lot of reverence and all the other processes of life also have 
potential reverence and they're worth examining through the framework of how everything that's not on the stage can help inform what's going on the stage. Um, so that's what I mean by that. Um, yeah, man, it was really like when I, I would say my favorite moments that are at least coming to me right now are like the earlier moments of my career. Oh, you know, getting to play Bonnaroo this year was pretty cool. And then we just did the Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville. It was our biggest show to date. That was really cool. And the Kitchen Dwellers tour that we did in fall of 22 was really cool. You know, 27 shows in 30 days. We had a, we had a, a, a 96 hour period where we played five sets uh, in April. Um, but then it was also when I was younger getting to be mentored and, and getting to sit in on stage with, you know, Brent Mason and Johnny Highland and James Mitchell and um, Eddie Lang and Mike Sweeney and um, all these, uh, you know, and uh, Willie Cantu, you know, who played for Buck Owens, who, you know, obviously act naturally, you know, we would play that song all the time with them. And it was that, that kind of a deal. These, all these, all these guys were playing down on Broadway during the daytime for a hundred dollars and some Budweiser in a bottle. Like these were absolute legends. And I was um, welcomed into their world from, for about five years of my life. And I was down there all the time, 14 to 19. So those were, those periods of time were filled with great wonder and discovery that kind of stick out as those archetypal favorite moments in my life. So who's your biggest musical influence when it comes to playing the guitar? Playing the guitar would be Brent Mason, James Burton, J.D. Simo, Jerry Garcia, Jerry Reed, uh, Peter Green, Eric Clapton, uh, Chet Atkins, and Dickie Betts. Oh, nice. Yeah. Now, does that differ when it comes to songwriting? Yeah, it's harder to say who influences my songwriting. Um, I, I really think all of everything does. Um, Jack Kerouac influences my songwriting um alan watts influences my songwriting ram Dass, bob dylan john prine bob ross robert hunter dean dylan jj kale krungbin it, it's really always like a revolving see when you when you when you work in a state of flow uh so when you're uh, you're kind of just oh you're always on a project that it has a, a time horizon of some nature. And whatever you're doing uh, with the project, the constant variable is that you are involved in the project. And so whatever I'm listening to, reading at the time, just inspirational information that I'm consuming, that stuff tends to sit in my subconscious mind and reflect itself back at me at whatever project that I'm ever um, participating in. And um, the time delay between the reflections of what I'm taking in, appearing back at me in my work, are nonlinear. It is, uh, you know, some. I remember we were playing in New Orleans this summer, and uh, we heard someone dressed up as BB King on the street, like performing. And uh, I was like, okay, that's cool. I haven't listened to that in a while. And then, like that night, the BB King riffs came out. So sometimes it's that day. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, compounded from a day. Sometimes it's a longer thing. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my, my influences. I love Tolkien, too, by the way. I love magic realism. Yeah, John Lennon was reaching for magic realism in a very profound and everlasting way when you start observing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, uh, 
uh, that kind of um, furniture within writing. Um, so that I, I love as well. I, the idea of being able to create a world that is real like this one, but unreal in ways like this one that has a hero and there's a darkness element and there's a light element and there's contrast and texture. And there's a, there's a, there is a trip to be taken and a journey to be trusted. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And these are all songs that stand the test of time because they're separate from time. And one of the things I really love about your answer is that your influences are not just musical. They're all great minds. Like you mentioned Jack Kerouac and Ram Dass. I actually have the book Be Here Now by Ram Dass right here on my desk. Oh, you got Ram. Yeah. Yeah, I love that one. Which reminds me that George Harrison actually wrote a song called Be Here Now, which was inspired by this book too. Mm -hmm. Which all leads me to my next question of what do you think of George Harrison as a songwriter and a guitar player? Yeah. You know, so something that came to me that always sat with me in a, in a, in a way that was very real was Robin Ford, a dear friend and mentor of mine who, who co-produced Young Man's Country with me. He played for George and he, he, I asked him one day, you know, who we were talking about over at lunch, we were having these tuna sandwiches and Robin, we were eating sandwiches from this place like all week. And they were putting way too much mayonnaise on the tuna. And it was like really pissing Robin off. And it was so funny. But we got over it eventually. And uh, he's like, these guys need to cool it on the tuna. He would he said it five times, you know, throughout the whole week. <laughs> cool it on the tuna. But he said George was his favorite artist to play with. And that's over, you know, that's over Miles Davis and Joni Mitchell. So he said George just had a thing that made you want to play for him. And I was like, what do you mean play for him? Because he's like, the more you played for George, the more he played with you. And he's like, and then he went on to expand it a little bit more, but I don't want to put any words in his mouth. But what I think he was getting at is that George was able to channel an energy that was, it came to him for some reason, and it didn't come to others at that level for some reason. And he was able to channel it and dedicate his life to it in a real way that was meaningful. And that I think when you commit yourself to that level, which might not be consciously within our own free will, there's a uh, overtone that is within every essence of what you play that most likely resonates throughout the universe in some degree. And I think George Harrison, um, you know, within the Beatles, he was... He wasn't even, how old was he when he did Sgt. Pepper, 25? Uh, he was 24 when they did Sgt. Pepper, which is wild. Okay. Oh, that's, think about that. And then it wasn't over there. And if you watch Get Back, you see that there was a whole different George that happened then. And, and then All Things Must Past happens. Um, and I live for you. And what is life? Isn't it a pity? you know, with George Martin. So it's very fascinating. I, he had an identity that was within the Beatles that he didn't find great comfort with as readily seen within Get Back. And he was able to take that identity and be vulnerable with it to some degree and work with George Martin on that record. And he was able to transcend himself in some way. He was a phoenix rising through ashes 
uh, the ashes of the identity of what he was in the Beatles, which you could clearly observe, you know, when, when George goes up to, to John and, and Paul, and he's like, I think I'm going to start just doing my own songs. And they were like, yeah, of course. It was a totally nonchalant thing, but you listen to the record, you know, you listen to all things that's past, you're like, yeah, you definitely did your own songs. <laughs> you famously speaking. Like, my lord. That record uh, moves me in, in ways that I'm, I probably will be processing for a while. I do listen to it all the time. It's my favorite George Harrison record. Um, it's kind of really the only one I listen to. I, I'm sure it'll be a time down the line where another one arrives on the chessboard and I have to wonder about the next move there. Um, but that's kind of how music unveils itself to me. So that record is marvelous and Cosmic Country is to definitely be found within All Things Must Pass. So, yeah, George Harrison. And, you know, one other thing, too, is um, being a guitar player in a band is different than being a guitar player. Really? Yeah. And George Harrison, I mean, really, on an archetypal level, kind of was the first one to really do it at that level. Um, here's where you can go. And here are the tones and here's ideas for parts. And you got to sing. You got to sing. There's four people in the van. You got to sing. There's, uh, you know, four uh, symbolically. Like uh, Carl Jung talks about this, where the square is somewhat symbolic to a symbol of, uh, to a meaning that is f final and perfect. And mise en place, you know, essentially everything is in its place and it's, it's ready to go. And it's also done. It's perfect. It's a frame. And so you have this framework that he was operating within that that's a big challenge for a lot of guitar players. And they wouldn't have been that musical and, and that creative and then also individual at the same time. Um, I'm just one of the most marvelous musicians that we'll ever witness. Huge influence on me. More so as a singer and a rhythm guitar player than anything else. Oh, really? Yes. So how does the influence for your singing come across? There's, um, all of the Beatles have a massive observable difference in their vocal delivery style. Especially the more you listen, the more obvious it becomes. It's like the Grateful Dead in that way. George Harrison is a very complete and individualized, effectively soulful, transparent singer. But there are certain elements that are to be observed in the technical circularity of Paul McCartney's delivery to where, I mean, if you were on stage with that guy and you were like writing with that guy, that'd be, he's a lot to live, to live with. I mean, so that's a lot. It's a lot of talent. Obviously it's Paul McCartney and George Harrison was able to be George Harrison in that. So he must've had a certain acceptance with who he was and how he sounded and just trusted that the locking in of that puzzle piece was enough. I love that. And his lyrics as well, the way he delivers his lyrics, the way that his, he's not so concerned about ending with pitch all the time. I live for you. It's very Dylan in that way, you know, but I don't like to put proper nouns to it because it's really just an energy that a person is reaching for, I think, to some degree. So, yeah, man, George, George Harrison as a guitar player and a rhythm guitar player for me is, is very real. So let's say that you were in George Harrison's shoes 
or one Beatles recording session. Which Beatles song do you feel like you could best express yourself with the guitar on? Oh. Um, there's a lot of them. Uh, In My Life would have been nice. Um, Ticket to Ride, Day Tripper, Something, Don't Let Me Down. I think George Harrison did fine on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, so I don't need to play on that. <laughs> yeah, I could go all day on Beatles songs I'd like to play. Um, you, you, you had an interesting one where... Um, you you said the Beatles and classical music, and that was fascinating. Um, so I we don't need to talk about that now, but I would like to discuss that before we finish the podcast at some time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I was just going to ask you about the influence that classical music and the Beatles have had on you, and why it's important to help keep that type of music alive through new music. I don't think they need help staying alive. At all. No, I think they're there. I think they're in uh, the collective conscious at such a rate, at, for such a duration, that they, the mycelium effect of those musical networks have found its way into the unconscious archives of society. And it looks like societies that transcend across a level that might be global to some measurable degree. So yeah, they're there. They're there forever. So the Beatles and classical music, I, I could hear how in some of those cadences and in some of those um, uh, particular uh, chordal voicings that are played on particular instruments that you would say that there is a, uh, a classical influence. Um, absolutely and inarguable. But there's a lot of uh, effective bandwidth of the Beatles catalog that there's not an influence that that is really readily classical now when you get into um what does classical mean and you look at perhaps something it's hard to say what that means but something might say for how long it, it stuck around against everything else that has ever come with it you would then see that the beatles are a classical act they're not going anywhere you know, unless some brave new order happens and we have to get rid of the Beatles, but we probably won't. If I use the Beatles to hypnotize people, if anything, <laughs> you know, yeah, every, it's like Mickey definitely. Mouse. There's a, there's a vibe, there's a vibrational phenomenology to it. It's like, it's like Mickey Mouse, man. It's like, it, it can't go. It's so true. It's vibrating at, at its level so well that it resonates with people in every generation in most places where people live, and they like it. It's inexplainable. And it's what I'm also obsessed with having in essence in my life. So speaking about timelessness and songs, as a creator, what do you think the most important essence is to include in your songwriting if you want your song to be timeless? Or is it something that you really have no control over and it's really just up to the masses to decide which songs they're going to bring to the next generation? Um, whether the will that us temporal beings have objectively affects whether something like that happens is, is less important than the, than the, I think, in my opinion, um, than just the act of serving the task at hand. 
So if you want something to be timeless, that's a really big question that I've thought a lot about without directly answering it in this way. Um, but I, I think the short answer is you, you probably don't have a lot of control whether something's timeless or not. I don't think... Um, it doesn't seem like the, the Beatles thought that that was happening. And if you observe their process, their process is a lot like a lot of other people. Um, it, at least externally, it seems that way. I don't know what's going on in their internal worlds, which is probably where a lot of these magical frequencies are founded. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would say that that's the deal. I would say you just show up for the task and the most important things to answer the, the former part of the question, uh, what essences to include within your work and your play, which seem to exist on two polarities, um, or in a singular polarity and they're two, they're two poles that is that, that relationship of work and play is an ever present, in, uh, variable in any task working and playing and mammals are the, are the, are, are the only beings that have a play circuit on our brain. Uh, it's built into us. And when you're playing the measurement and uh, sim symbolism of time uh, in a, in a whispering and subtle slippery way uh, changes into a, a different system of metrics. Um, so I would say you want to work and play at a high level, high frequency level, and the things to aim for, which are immensely transpersonal and hard to answer in any way more defined than this, but the thing to aim for is truth, beauty, and goodness against all odds, externally and internally. Oh, definitely. And that even ties in with the last lyrics the Beatles ever recorded in the studio. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect way to summarize that up as well. That's as above, so below. That's the, that's the second principle. That's the principle of correspondence. Um, this is a principle that has been around for, for, for a very long period of time. And that truth manifested itself in the beauty of that lyric. And how good it is. We've been talking a lot about the intersection between philosophy and writing songs and making timeless art. Do you think that artists were a lot more aware of this intersection back then, like in the 60s and 70s, than they are now? Hmm. You know, I'm thinking about bands like The Beatles, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Um, yeah, I mean, you also should listen to um, Parliament Funk. You know, or or like, um, you listen to the George Parliament Funkadelic, and it's like, you listen to George Clinton, and or, or just really any of the lyrics on some of these records, and you're like, oh yeah, there's that, there's that feeling again, you know, and uh, so I think you know, I think in our culture today, I'm I was born in 1995, so I can't speculate in any way that has any legs past what I've been present for. But it does seem like that there was um there was a curiosity that was spiritually and philosophically and higher consciously driven in that time frame. Um, but there was also a lot of those people coming about. Um, 
Carl Jung was coming about then as well. Uh, well, he preceded that, but his work was was around then. And I do know that some of the cats and the dead were reading were reading him, and the Arantia book came out then, or it came out you know within a ten year period of that, and um, or all all kinds of other selected works. But it does seem like we can trace that previous societies did have a more mythological explanation for the synchronicities of life. Um, now, if I were sitting by the side of a river and a fish were to hop up onto the out of the water and onto the grass next to me, I would explain that by using some app location that's on my phone that could tell me all kinds of fields of data that would explain why the water was fruitful for that occurrence. But before we had access to that side of reality, we would just call that an act of God or an act of the universe or whatever, whatever word mouth sound it is that you can put your name next to in the social contract of all of this. Um, so I, I think the musician's opportunity and perhaps responsibility is to be aware of both of the sides of this strange, peculiar prism of existence is that there is an explanation. There is There are causal reasons. Um, but there are also a-causal events that are, 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 are hard to explain. And you could try to explain away your whole entire life away. That's why people conspiratize all kinds of happenings. And that's why the we get engagement on it is because we're, I think we're just trying to figure out what's going on here. And... Um, I don't know. It seems like humans are so smart that they might get in their own way sometimes. And speaking from a human that has gotten in his own way, I, I see it in other people, you know? So yeah, you know, the best writers that I've been in the room with or, or people I've seen perform, there is a thing about them where they really are playing. It's not that it's not, it's not that it's not arduous work to get there. Um, but they are really playing like in a deep way. Like they, they definitely are appearing to you in a realm that is definitively spaced and timed out, but there is a part of their unconscious that is, I would think, is partaking in something that is not very visible, um, especially, especially to the spectrum of light that we can readily observe with our eyes, which are directly connected to our brains. I don't know, but there is something happening there that is truly transcendent and necessary for a higher consciousness of, of life. Oh, absolutely, dude. And I, you know, I just think back to the way that Paul McCartney describes how he writes songs sometimes. Like he says that sometimes he walks into Abbey Road Studios and he'll sit, he'll sit down at, the, at a piano and just start playing. And all of a sudden the long and winding road will come out or Lady Madonna. Um, and it's just that kind of, he's tuned in to a higher consciousness that's just melodies are flowing into him. And although I haven't been around anyone notable who's actively writing a song, I believe that happens sometimes for sure. Yeah, I love that. And that's actually a very good article to to inject into the conversation to evolve it uh, to include Paul. Uh, the, one of the things that was really... Paul McCartney. I don't know Paul McCartney, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call him Paul McCartney. Um, <laughs> It's, it's important to know the importance of what we're getting with the documentary Get Back is because we got to see Paul out of a T.S. Eliot uh, Necessities and Mother of Invention fueled moment 
of writing Get Back. Um, now, when you hear the idea of, I, I, you know, Paul goes, Paul McCartney goes to Abbey Road, he sits down and out comes Lady Madonna. That's one story. Uh, but the thing that the film shows us is that there's many moments and um, in intentional sequences that actually go into the unveiling and emergence of Get Back, the song. There's a lot. Yeah, they really played the fuck out of it a lot. They rehearsed it a lot. He was rewriting the lyrics. There was all kinds of working and playing that was going to, in the investment and the manifestation of that song, man. And that's the amazing thing. So the, when I was a kid, I used to hear things like that from Paul McCartney. I used, I, I was so admirable, admiring and adorative of his quality of what he said there that I thought, when I sit down at a piano or a guitar and that doesn't come to me, I'm doing something wrong. Um, but then to see the film and to see that it, there is magic, but there is work. There is magic. And then there is work, right? There is science, but then there is an adventure and, and everybody can interface with both. And that's the thing is like, nobody's excluded from the work is what I think I'm, I'm getting at. It seems like the greatest writers would be the first ones to, to kind of admit that. Oh, absolutely. Like when I was yeah. watching Get Back, it seemed to me that like Paul was sitting there strumming his bass, actively trying to translate whatever came to his mind into words and melody that, you know, other people on earth can understand. He was working. He was working in that movie. Yeah. He was yeah. working. I, I love it. To me, Paul's the beacon, personally. It just always has been that way. And, um, John Lennon more recently, I, I, I feel intimately moved by his work, but it was just because I was ready for it now. I wasn't ready for John Lennon when I, was, when I first heard the Beatles. I was ready for George's guitar and Paul's mind. And it still is that way. Yeah. And you know, another aspect of Paul's hard work in Get Back is not just the songwriting, but trying to corral everyone into working and trying to get everyone to show up on time saying come on guys you know we have a rooftop concert in two days we have to do this project yeah yeah and you know and feeling pushback from everybody mm. yeah feeling pushback and trying to and that's the thing too that, that that film afforded us was to see that even you know brothers and partners in frequency of that world caliber class they still bicker and they still feel like they're getting bossed around or they feel like they're just playing into somebody's vision or, you know, one guy doesn't like that song and the other guy does and they don't want to do it. They all, it's all the dramatic necessities um, that come with collaboration on any level, especially with that level of intimacy. is marvelously reassuring. I would say just like public, like mental health wise, every musician should watch Get Back. Like they just ran into all of the mortal problems that everyone else runs into and they transcended them. They showed up, they had their tea, they had their pens, they had their fender amplifiers and they got to work. And that's what it's like, come on, that's amazing. It's like, what a gift to be able to see those, you know, what was it? Nine hours. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when the original let it be movie first came out, 
everyone was upset that they saw the Beatles arguing like these four happy guys are now falling apart. What? I disagree with like that sentiment. Not that people were were arguing that they were that they were sad, but it's like why would that ever be anything but expected? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what it. kind of um, you're putting a lot of wool over your eyes, in my opinion, to think that that again, but that a lot of the a lot of the words that we read from these artists are. Um, I don't know. I don't want to speak too broadly, but they do fall under that kind of silky story of I sit down and it comes to me and it doesn't happen to anyone else. That kind of a thing. I'm trying to just speak in broad terms as, you know, just to get the point across. That's I'm not, I'm not saying Paul said that, or, you know, other people say that, but there is that kind of a thing that we hear. We hear the story about, you know, a genius that goes and sits down and something magical happens. And all of a sudden comes, you know, Harry Potter. Right. And there it is. It must have wrote itself. I don't know. I was, that was on Instagram. My left hand was just writing and I was looking out the window. Oh my <laughs> God. Would you look at that? The Hobbit. Well, that's fascinating. I guess I'll publish this one. Yeah. <laughs> it's like nothing like that. And, um, uh, it's uh, good. I guess it's good. People were sad. <laughs> it's terribly unempathetic, but seriously, like good like it means it's and it's okay because like if your work's hard their work's hard it's good to know that the universe doesn't seem to let anybody get out without a few band-aids yeah you know it's like with a few scratches that's the way man and um it, it was marvelously reassuring and i viewed it as a uh necessity for my mental health as a musician like it it transformed uh in some in some way measurable not completely um, it was just slight software upgrade to some of the bugs that I had had in my relationship to the process of my work. And when all is said and done, what's your favorite Beatles song and your favorite Beatles album? I would say favorite album is Rubber Soul. It's been my longest favorite album, but yesterday and today actually um, is, is, is one, of, one of my favorites. And uh, song, uh, my favorite Ringo song is Octopus Garden. My favorite John Lennon song is Hide Your Love Away right now. My favorite Paul McCartney song is Yesterday. And for George, it's hard for me. It really is. I don't really know. Yeah. But man, I, I could also, you know, I could also, I, I, I just love, I just love concert for, for Bangladesh so much. It was like, that that I, that kind of just transcends the Beatles for me when I listen to that. Um, you know, but uh, I like Blue Jay Way. I guess if I have to comment on like a specific Beatles song, I think Blue Jay Way is pretty cool. That was a that was a big move on George's end to like include that song on that collection of music. That's really again transcending the identity that you've presently built up for yourself. So you know, we see animals do this. We see hermit crabs do it when they get bigger shells and skins do it with their uh or snakes do it with their skin and humans they do it in ways that are visible and also not visible and it's almost like the ways that are not visible seem to have more of a radiation than the visible ways you know so they notably started dressing different and the interview the demeanor of their interviews changed but the, the it was really the music that they were really turning into different people uh they were changing and they were doing it they were changing as one as a song changes with the chords and it was just so harmoniously beautiful. And this is what kind of circles back to this concept of, I don't know fully the difference between life and music because 
There are working patterns that are happening at all points in time that are either harmonious or not harmonious. There is a central chord to which everything belongs and everything else has context and texture to. And then one of the more important things is that there's not only light and darkness, major and minor, uh, there are chord changes. <laughs> so what is once the one chord, the root chord changes to the four chord or to the five chord or from the C to the D. And all of those changes have different feelings, and yet each one is completely necessary to get back to where it all started. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, in hindsight, it's easy to track changes. You know, in 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. All that stuff. But in the moment, you know, hearing Blue Jay Way come out of your speakers for the first time, I mean, that must have been scary. That must have been a really scary feeling. Yeah, this is, an, I, this is not I want to hold your hand. Yeah. This, this is not that. Yeah, you know, there's a fog upon L.A. and my friends have lost their way. It's very like Alfred Hitchcock thriller kind of stuff. It is Hitchcocky. It is. It's all yeah. It's Kubricky. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, definitely. It is. That's a nice connection on those two there. And yeah, so yeah, man. And what you know, life imitates art. I guess. I guess that's what. Wow. Here I am thinking. I. I don't really. I haven't. I don't really have a lot of other sources to go to on this weird idea I have between music being so different than life or not. And it is life imitates art. I like how life comes first because the art is the most important. Life goes. Art stays. Weird, weird big thoughts. Weird big thoughts that I live with all the time that have been coming my way since I was 14. And it's it's just so reassuring, man. Get Back, I think, is like just... It's the it's not the Beatles. They were they they proved that they they worked live. They worked on albums. They worked in movies. They worked in singles. Now they just are. And they, maybe they have been. But when you watch Get Back, you get it all. You get a music video. You get a bio. You get a biopic. You get essentially podcasts. You get in, you get albums. You get a live performance. You get the entire spectrum that the personality of an artist has the fields of media to exist in and they just vibrate at this immensely high level through every second and beat and note and writing at it throughout all of it and it's just the best man it really is it's art their life is art you could every part of it was art the policemen knowing it was the beatles and not stopping them so fast we know that art stays we know that life goes yeah we know these are the good guys yeah <laughs> So would you say that watching Get Back is your favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Um, you know, as Chris Stapleton said, the, the best songs are the songs that you can make your own. And those are the songs he tries to write. Um, and, you know, the moment of sitting on the deck with Sam with his Epiphone 12 string and him playing Blackbird and me hearing those, hearing that thing, of those sixths happening that are actually thirds. Uh, your life is different after you hear that. Wow. Incredible. You know, and so that was it for me. It was the gift of that melody played by Sam 
on my grandmother's deck, I guess, from like 2007 or 8, probably 2007. Such a beautiful rendition too, by the way. That sounded amazing. Thanks. Would you ever consider recording that and releasing it on Spotify? Yeah, sure, why not? Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> you, the thing is, you would just have to, uh, I would like to do it in a way that evolves the conversation more. Hmm. Um, so, and maybe that's not necessary. So maybe I have to wait a while longer till I rid myself of that youthful drive to change something that's already perfect. But yeah, I, I, I that, that'd be a good one to at least learn and, and see. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. All your life, you've only been waiting for this moment to arrive. Um, man, come on. That, that's one you can take into the dark of night right there. That was so beautiful, man. I'm eagerly awaiting you to release that on Spotify. <laughs> Thanks. And Daniel, I just have one more question for you. Uh, what are you up to now? Are you involved in any projects? What can we be expecting to hear and see from you in the next few months yeah we just finished um overdubs on a 15 song 16 song window of recording and we're gonna see uh come up with probably a nine song album out of that um and then we just finished a, a tour last year that was over 180 shows a year of touring and we head out to colorado this weekend to start the year of touring um, we start getting busy in March. Um, so in between now and then, we're just, I'm writing a lot of songs and editing a lot of songs and reading and just getting my subconscious um, filled with as much gas in the tank as I can before I start to embark on the the yang to my yin of my lifestyle, which is touring, uh, which is a different schedule and trip than being at home. So, yeah, man, just I'm, I feel like I'm in the flow right now. And it feels marvelous. I feel like I haven't been here in a while. Um, so I'm very grateful and thankful. And this is why I love having conversations with people who love music, uh, such as yourself, Jack. Um, so this is very recharging and, and marvelous for me to be a part of. So I thank you for having me on here. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. To find out more about Daniel Donato and his music, check out all the links included in the podcast description. If you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social media. As always, I will see you next week with a brand new episode. 